Welcome to the Masters of Automation podcast series. In today's episode, we have Professor Tom Davenport with us. Uh, welcome, Professor. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you join. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, Tom Davenport is the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson, the co-founder of the International Institute for Analytics, a fellow of the MIT Initiative for the Digital Economy, as and a senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics. Uh, he has written or edited 20 books and over 250 print or digital articles for Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, The Financial Times, and many other publications. He earned his PhD from Harvard and has taught at HBS, the University of Chicago, the Tuck School of Business, BU, and University of Texas in Austin. Uh, one of HBR's most frequently published authors, uh, Tom has been at the forefront of the process innovation, knowledge management, and analytics and big data movements. So he pioneered the concept of competing on analytics with his 2006 Harvard Business Review article and his 2007 book by the same name. Since then, he has continued to provide cutting edge insights on how companies can use analytics, big data, and AI to their advantage. Uh, and Tom's book co-authored with Julia Kirby, Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines, offers tangible tools for individuals who, who need to work with cognitive technologies. So, so we have a very special guest with us today that we can dive into different areas and topics, starting from AI, big data, analytics, knowledge management, and such. But um, I'd like to kick things off by asking you the first question of what inspired you to pursue a career uh, in analytics and data science and within both academia, as well as then transitioning a little bit, collaborating with more in the private sector as well. Sure. Well, I was um, in uh, graduate, even late undergraduate and throughout graduate school, I was a sort of a consultant to people doing statistical computing uh, for their academic work. I sort of paid my way through graduate school that way. And um, I liked it a lot. I got more and more, I was a sociologist by academic background. I got more and more interested in computing, but um, then I got into, when I, I became a consultant, I got um, into business schools. I, I sort of left analytics for quite a while and I was doing stuff like, I don't know, business process re-engineering and knowledge management and so on. And I remember I was doing some knowledge management work and I, it's kind of the steam was going out of that area a little bit. And I thought, uh, you know, there's this whole area of knowledge that's derived from data that we don't really focus on enough. This was kind of in the business intelligence era. So I um, uh, fortunately got um, some money from SAS and Intel to do some research on their customers about um, what they were doing with business intelligence. And it turns out they were doing more than that, that whole competing on analytics idea came out of there and then uh, you, that sort of evolved into big data and that evolved into AI. So that's kept me going for, I don't know, 20 something years now um, in one aspect of it or another. And I think I have eight or nine books. I, I don't know exactly how many, but more than anybody would want to read, certainly. 
There's definitely plenty of books <laughs> and as well as articles as well. So, so throughout your 20 years, I mean, you've seen the knowledge management, the data starting and then leveraging analytics to drive some predictions on that data, some user behavior and, and whatnot. But then it goes to the more artificial intelligence to better understand the pattern patterns and then build application layer on top of that. Um, so through, throughout your research, what were some of the, um, some of the insights that you had that, uh, first you told some enterprises and customers weren't able to adopt quickly, or maybe, maybe resistant to change a little bit. Um, and then what were some that were quick to adopt and then how different was their mindset? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I think um, you could argue, I, I started um, really around 2000 with an article called Data to Knowledge to Results, Building an Analytical Capability, and nobody paid any attention to that at all. I don't know if it, it was a... Um, not a, as widely read a journal maybe, or I don't, I don't know, there, maybe the timing wasn't right. But when I started writing about how companies compete on analytics, I think they were quite interested in um, doing more with analytics, but it's always been a challenge to get companies to compete on analytics or to compete on AI. My most recent work is basically about competing on AI um, although we didn't really call it that. The book's called All In on AI. And I think, um, you know, companies aren't really ready to go all in on anything that they don't fully understand. So it's um, it's been a struggle, I think, to get the competing and the strategy-oriented approaches adopted. But certainly there's been a huge increase in the number of companies that are you know, doing more with analytics and have chief analytics officers and AI um, experiments anyway, if not, you know, large scale commitments. So I think it's the, it's a matter of just how much scale they're willing to, you know, adopt, how, how, how much they're willing to commit to this. That's the organizational um, change challenge. You think like as, as they take a lot of time to, to adopt in their change management as well as a structure, how they can adopt the technology. There are new startups forming. You just address that niche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's the, the big issue. These legacy companies, which I've always been quite interested in because of the challenges of transforming them into um, some organization that can compete with startups, but at the, if, if they don't succeed, then they, they you know, go out of business or lose market share or whatever to the startups. And um, there are, you know, I've had a fair amount of exposure to digital native companies um, over the years. And the, the big difference between them is you don't, and the legacy companies is you don't have to persuade them that analytics are important. Um, you know, you don't have to tell them that they should do stuff with analytics and they don't even, I mean, not everybody. I've done some work. I've had some students from Google and so on, and they were in parts of Google that were not terribly 
analytical, but in general, the, you know, the company is extremely analytical, same with Facebook and Airbnb and Uber and so on. And um, it's, you don't have to persuade them that they should do something. They're doing a lot. They don't, they don't even have a need for chief analytics officers or whatever. It's just kind of pervasive in those companies. Um, so um, that is the big difference. And, you know, I, I would like it for these um, businesses that have been around, you know, longer than Silicon Valley to be able to evolve um, quickly into a form that will, you know, last over time and let them compete with those those um, digital native companies. But not everyone seems up to the up to the task. How do you see the culture of the companies um, impacting this? Because I, I think the startups, because they're small, they they're able to move fast. And obviously, Google and Facebook are are massive right now. But like it, some of the roles and tasks to do are already embedded in the roles. Um, so they do not need someone else to drive this new initiative and, and, and whatnot. Whereas in an enterprise that has been doing this maybe 300 years, 200 years, or like they have systems from 1950s, legacy applications and whatnot. So they will need to really change the way people think, the way people approach the problem solving um, to then um, adopt these skills. Um, so how, 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 what are your thoughts around company as a culture, but also the talent pool within these two different companies? And then what kind of like digital skill set they can uh, adopt? Yeah, I mean, I think it is largely a matter of culture. And um, I've done some surveys usually um, with a guy named Randy Bean at New Vantage Partners every year. He's been doing a survey of chief kind of chief data and analytics officer types. And um, every year we ask, you know, do you have a data-driven culture? Are you a data-driven organization? And it doesn't get better. I mean, it's um, typically maybe 25% say they do. And these are, a lot of them are financial services companies. You'd think they have so much data that they would be highly analytical. So, you know, I think a lot about why that is, why even the numbers have gotten worse um, over the past decade in some cases. And um, I think it's just companies don't really have very many initiatives to change the culture in that direction. They spend a lot of money on technology, obviously, and there's this kind of feeling that, uh, you know, if if you lead the horse to water, it will drink, <laughs> but that often doesn't happen. And so um, I think we just need more explicit initiatives to address culture. But, you know, that probably won't happen unless the CEO is already a believer. If the CEO is a believer, then maybe, you know, they're moving in the right direction already culturally. But um, I think it comes down to culture and what drives culture, of course, is the the desires of the senior management team, particularly the CEO, but but probably broader than that. Mm -hmm. And that would make sense. I think like similar to other initiatives, if the directive comes from top to bottom and it's, it's faster to adopt, easier to uh, not challenge <laughs> uh, that, that approach. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly there are some companies that I've worked with that um, 
the CEO was a big believer, and for a while they did all sorts of fantastic things. Um, uh, I have a long-term friend, and he was a neighbor at one point, um, and Gary Loveman, who was, he was a Harvard Business School professor where I first got to know him. Our kids played baseball together. Then he left Harvard and went out to first Harrah's, and that became Caesars. He became CEO, was the world's largest gaming or gambling company, if you prefer that term. And they were hugely analytical because he was an absolute believer that analytics were going to make them successful. And um, he hired people and he fired people based on how analytical they were and so on. But then he left and it kind of devolved back into the typical gambling company in terms of its orientation to analytics. I mean, some didn't go away totally, but um, not nearly as strong as it was. So I think it's, um, you've got to build it so that it's not just in the minds of one um, CEO or one senior executive, some, something that really becomes uh, well-established throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. How, I, I think as part of the, like people adopting certain skills and then the change, there's also the, the uh, and the book, The Power of Habits, highlighted really well, um, like especially the way people do the, the trigger action and reward mechanism. And, and, I, and, and then there were some examples around, um, ar- around Caesars in the book as well, like the way they interact with the gaming to be able to make it more addictive. But also there's the portion that right now in today's technologies and enterprises leverage similar type of habit building concepts across the pla- their platforms, including Facebook that everyone knows at this point <laughs> right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that habits. Uh, so, so it's even more widespread. So like, like analytics and AI can drive these habit building applications that can be both detrimental and beneficial for the user. Um, based on your experience and exposure, uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, no, I think that there is some potential there and uh, we've seen how um, how well it works to inculcate bad behaviors in social media oriented companies. And in my latest book, we looked also at um, companies who were attempting to create more positive types of behavior change, again, through the combination of analytics and, and behavioral economics type nudges and most of them were insurance companies. And I think they finally, it took them a while, but they sort of realized, well, you know, why should we just, you know, pay people when they get sick? Maybe we could try to make them be well more of the time. And um, so we talked about Anthem and um, uh, some other, Manulife in Canada, a number of other companies trying to, um, use data and analytics to um, nudge their customers into better health behaviors. And um, I, then I realized at one point, pro- that's what Progressive has been doing with this you know, usage-based insurance, not only making you pay more, which that's, that's certainly a part of it if you're a bad driver, but also telling you if you're a bad driver and trying to get you not to be a bad driver. Um, and in fact, Gary Loveman, the, the CEO, former CEO of Caesars, is now in a company um, 
he tried to do this in a big insurance company. I won't say who it is, but it was just way too expensive, even to add, you know, your cell phone number and your email to their customer database. They said it's going to cost tens of millions. So he said, okay, I got to do this as a startup and it's called well, and it's, um, using nudges to and a lot of analytics and AI to create better behaviors. So I think there's some possibilities there. It's still early days. We don't really know if that is that going to work. Um, but we might as well be trying for, you know, good behaviors rather than the bad <laughs> that we've seen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then in terms of like as as the companies adopt this habit building approaches um there's also the the regulations and then the ethics teams are forming within within the enterprises to help regulate yeah. some of those activities but, but, then they, but then they fire all the ethics people that seems to be <laughs> yeah. happened this week at microsoft uh, at least all the centralized ethics people and it happened at google and so on so i don't know what's going on there yeah it's it's definitely like some part of it is more for the eyes that like look we're doing something because we have a team and some part of it is the government's imposed that and we have to have this team but we can reduce their headcount and then the third part is they i think this will be the more um, idealist in me they are actually collaborating very together and then uh, building those habits uh, habit building apps yeah, you know, I, I've been kind of disappointed in these vendors because I, I wrote something about Microsoft a few years ago, and I thought they they're, um, they were quite focused on ethics and so on. And now it's sort of, eh, you know, we don't need this centralized ethics team anymore. And I think um, I do, while well, I think, you know, um, some of the stuff that OpenAI has done is is quite impressive, I don't think they should have just, you know, turned it loose on society without um, um, making it work a little better just so they could be ahead of Google or whatever, you know, to try to bring some new market share to Bing. So um, I'm a little disappointed in the whole industry, frankly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen in an, in an interview that Sam Altman had, apparently um, they have a more ethics team or a team that's more interactive with the way people can work with um, chat GPT and generative tech technologies early on to be able to then make it more um, friendly and, and less toxic <laughs> uh, of an AI, <laughs> um, which, which, which is interesting um, compared to how the others were approaching it. Yeah, I mean, um... I think they've worked a lot on making it less toxic and you know, Microsoft should have learned a big lesson there with Tay a few years ago, which became toxic um, really quickly in the, in the US version. The Chinese version did not become toxic, which probably tells you something about the different cultures of the two countries. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think, and, and, and I do understand that having people try things out is really the only way you you learn fully is this um, useful and helpful or not but um, I think it you know came a little fast and they they changed their perspective they were they did not release GPT2 broadly and they were quite conservative about releasing GPT3 broadly but 
chat GPT um, and GPT-4 now, which was announced yesterday, they're much less um, concerned, apparently. So. I think there was also, it's, it was interesting to see a chatbot succeed as well, because like chatbots used to be an app that everyone hated. Like everyone said, connect me to a representative immediately after yeah, just being yeah. in the chatbot. Press zero as quickly as possible or whatever. Yeah, and I don't, I think there are significant possibilities for um, specialized chatbots, not just the kind of, you know, generic one trained on the internet, but specialized ones. And a number of the companies that I work with are trying to sort of fine tune train the, um, the latest generation of generative um, tools on their own content. And in fact, I was supposed to have a call today with Morgan Stanley, which is, is doing this, um, a couple of insurance companies thinking about um, uh, insurance um, transaction-oriented chatbot that would help. Um, but it's still early days. I don't think we know yet. Will all those crazy things that make their way into chat GPT conversations, will that end up being something that happens in a chat about you know making a hotel reservation or whatever um uh i think uh there are ways to avoid that in fine-tuned training but i'm not entirely sure yet i'm trying to talk to companies about it what was the um, what was the first thing that came to your mind when you saw it happening i mean especially building up on your recent book um especially leveraging ai when you saw the generative tech coming up Obviously, the way, um, excluding the way the public reacted, um, what what was your personal impression of it? Um, I, you know, in, in my latest book, we um, talked about it a moderate amount. It was really mostly about code generation um, because Deloitte was working with OpenAI on... Um, uh, trying out how well it worked for code generation. And there'd been some other articles in the New York Times and other places about code generation, you know, the GitHub Copilot and um, OpenAI um, capabilities to do that. I forget what they called it. Um, but um, there wasn't that much in the world at large yet about the sort of conversational stuff. The, the Facebook conversational tool was not very good. Um, I had tried out um, GPT-3 for, you know, writing paragraphs and so on. And it was amazingly good, I thought. Um, but I, I what I, the only thing I was really surprised about was how quickly it was adapted to conversation. Um, and then I was surprised at the, some of the crazy emotions that it experienced, uh, you know, Love, lust, hatred. <laughs> it didn't, didn't take long uh, until all of the emotions in uh, humans made their way into ChatGPT. Yeah, <laughs> and and it and it had. Um, I think it has like sixty billion data points and whatnot. So it's uh, it's probably have all the emotions well, at once. <laughs> One hundred seventy-five billion parameters mm -hmm. and train on over. 500 billion pieces of text so it's not surprising that some of them were toxic um and i you know i don't know frankly how you um other than i guess 
uh, feeding it a bunch of uh, prompts and seeing what comes out. And you can, nobody understands what's inside these models, which is kind of the scary part and maybe the magical part as well. But I don't know, you know, how do you remove a toxic parameter or, or two or 20 or whatever out of 175 billion? I think that would be quite challenging. I'm glad that's not my job, but I wish, <laughs> I hope somebody is trying to figure that out. I think it's really tough. Yes, yes, and and that will lead to obviously more moderation and and ability to produce more positive content and whatnot. Like I, I think right now a lot of the like companies are looking to leverage these models and then build an application layer on top of these models, and then have the users interact with that application interface. So I've seen the Duolingo use case. I've seen a few other use cases that yeah, I one, use friends in Boston at um, uh, what's the outbound CRM, uh, HubSpot um, has one like that as well. It seems quite effective. It was very interesting at and at the HBS tech conference, I believe it was two, three weeks ago. Um, um, the CTO of HubSpot was there as well. And then he briefly talked about it um, around like, now he, say, he was saying like, essentially this is the number one topic is keeping me up at night because if somebody goes ahead and build a product that can compete with HubSpot, then then they will maybe essentially tying to our previous points like on um, losing that competitive edge. Um, and even though they like to call themselves as a startup after 10 years plus, um, they're a big company now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and um, Salesforce just announced that that they have um, uh, interface using GPT, and um, I think um, maybe one of the more um, uh, pervasive uses of this technology will be the, as you suggest, the kind of front end user interface for almost every every piece of software. Um, what were some of the use cases that you saw in the, um, like a, as a, as a professor, uh, uh, that could be adopted, like, uh, like grading homers to helping writing with papers or, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, grading would be nice. I don't know. I haven't seen anything like that. Um, uh, but I, I think we're sort of, uh, m many educators are sort of, um, missing out on the potential of this technology and you know, it's kind of like the reaction that people had to um using calculators um in math and how they were prohibited and so on and now of course who really remembers um how to do some uh complicated long division uh it's i mean i think it it's nice to have it in books in case you need it but you don't really need to practice it very much. And I think that we should be encouraging students to try it out and, of course, edit it, um, uh, what they what it comes out with. And um, I think it will be, it's just going to be the way we work and we might as well get students interested in that. So in my AI class, I'm definitely going to have students write um, something using maybe i'll let them choose which um i'm not teaching till the summer i haven't decided for sure i'll let them choose which 
generative tool they use and then edit it and you know change their prompts and go on and upgrade them on what came out of course i think you should tell your teacher or your boss or whatever that you're using this tool but this is this is going to be a big competitive advantage for any knowledge worker that knows knows how to do this stuff and this is the i think they have some they developed some capabilities i believe stanford did to help out with what what content is actually written by the generative tech to be able to do cross verification I, i'm not sure if it works well i'm sure it has 80 percent and whatnot also predict the rate and 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 those uh texts but it's um it's it's an interesting concept as well yeah um and there was a princeton guy who i who had a tool that could identify whether something was generated i you know it's it's going to be sort of a battle i think between the generative ai tools and the uh the tool to detect generative ai um but uh in the long run i think uh if we're not worried about how high quality content um is produced then i think we'll will be better off but that for the at the moment at least that means a lot of tinkering with different prompts and um doing different um uh edits on it when it when it comes out mm-hmm. and i've also by the way i think um you used to work with ian barkin i think right at symphony and so on he was on your podcast wasn't he Yes, yes, he was on my podcast. He he was one of the first ones. <laughs> okay, yeah, he's a great guy. And um uh we're doing some work together on sort of um citizen uh uh data science and automation and so on. And so he did some uh research um investigation using I think it was ChatGPT. Um, and it did a really good job, actually. It summarized a lot of things that had been written about that topic, even some articles that are b- behind paywalls. I don't know how it does that, but um, it's great. You know, we, we would never <laughs> have have found them, probably. But... Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and, and especially the like the access that it has. I mean, in some URLs, like, you, you'd be able to tell, like, here's every URL, go read about... Uh, what is in there and then summarize it back to me. And yeah. some of them it works. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. That's a great capability. I haven't tried, I have access, I guess, to chat uh, to GPT-4. Um, I haven't tried that yet, but I guess um, the Bing version of, of GPT is based on GPT-4, so I don't know. Um, and and to, to your point, so like you, you're thinking about exploring the citizen data scientist, maybe citizen uh, developer uh, concept more. Um, what are some of the areas that uh, you guys are looking to explore that can help the industry to to, to go forward? Um, well, you know, again, there's a big organizational change issue and companies, I think, are in many cases, reluctant to embark upon a the citizen journey um, for not any great reason. Sometimes it's IT people um, uh, objecting, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for bad. They're maybe afraid they're going to lose their job, or maybe they're just a, 
They don't want to spend all their time cleaning up the bad um, project work that citizens have done. Um, but um, in the companies that do this well, there are, are a few key attributes. Um, Ian has persuaded me, you know, you have to do recruitment well. And I, I found that I have found this in citizen data science space that some companies um, have really struggled with finding people who want to be citizen data scientists, even though they, they're wanting to train them and so on. Um, there's a, you have to think about, you know, tool related standards and so on. Um, there's the issue of, do you have a special version of that tool? Like, what is it? Studio X is the, is that the UiPath yep. end user version? Or, or can you just turn them loose on, you know, the, the regular offering? Um, and those are, even the regular offerings are getting pretty easy to use these days, particularly in the automation space. Um, uh, then um, you sort of need some, maybe some certification and training or probably training first and certification. Um, there's a sort of a community building component to it where you um, have people meet occasionally and share their ideas and so on. And then there's, I think an infrastructure component where you um, say in the data science space, here, here a bunch of features that have been uh, pre-engineered and we'll put it in a feature store and automation. You can have a little hub of the, of the automation um, automations, I guess. I never really like that as a, as a plural noun, but anyway, all of the ones that have already been developed so that people can access them and save a lot of time and, and so on. Um, so I think there is a fair amount of work that an organization can do to make citizens much more likely to be successful. But the biggest issue is many of them just don't try it at all. Yeah, and then they will not build the guardrails as well. And, and like I see community as being very impactful to knowledge exchange. And, and so that if somebody has any question, and this happens a lot in even the like advanced developers, right? Like they typically go to Stack Overflow and then copy and paste into into, into their their um, their canvas. And I think for for citizen developers, it's more on the low code and side. And then they will have also similar questions on how to tackle these things. But if the if there's a community where the network effects are enabled, that can really help. Uh, people to go forward. Yeah, and I think that the you know, generative stuff is going to enter all of these spaces. And it's going to make God God knows it's going to generate a lot of program code. It's going to be the interface for a lot of these tools. It's going to make it much easier to for citizens to do this work. So and in terms way, of Ian, Ian found yeah. some interesting things on um, uh, I don't know Reddit and and um, other a discord about people holding down multiple jobs because they've automated the task in one job and then they have time to do the things they need to do as a human in the other jobs that they have or maybe they've automated two jobs and they hold a third job or whatever so um it's called overemployed <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's enabling those automations to do the work <laughs> exactly <laughs> And that yeah, is that's... a good way to, you know, if you want to make some money from automation that you can 
uh, you start piling up those jobs, you can you can um, uh, <laughs> bring down a fair amount of, of cash. Yeah, that's that's really like maximizing productivity um, at, at best and. Yeah, individual less. individual level productivity, yeah. if not organizational level productivity. Yeah, yeah, and um, and in terms of right now building up to this, um, what do you think is is waiting the world within the next four to five years now, based on what you see, and uh, maybe even you can allow some utopic thinking as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Um, I, in general, have been quite positive about um, AI, and I wasn't I wasn't terribly worried about it kind of becoming our robot overlords and killing us all. Um, uh, certainly now I'm a little bit more concerned. I think now, now that I see what um, uh, the generative tools can do. And I think we probably need to get a bit more serious about regulations, certainly in the US. I think the US is, I mean, the, the, the um, EU is well ahead of us in that regard. And um, it could, I think it, as somebody said uh, on a podcast I was listening to the other day, it could be a, a thermonuclear bomb of disinformation and uh, that could have some really serious consequences. Um, you know, the, right now the deep fakes are not very good, but I think before long they're gonna be really quite good. And um, there's so many things that could go wrong there. So um, I think we need uh, to apply the brakes a little bit from a regulatory standpoint, which, you know, I didn't think that way until recently. Um, and, uh, I think for me, the biggest um, advance from some of these tools will be going back to what I did 20, um, 25 years ago in knowledge management to really manage the knowledge of an organization so that people can access it easily without necessarily having to, you know, um, put it into Lotus Notes or SharePoint or whatever. Um, and that's... Um, you know, it's not going to be easy to do all this fine-tuned training, and I think there will be different levels. There will be, I was talking to a law firm the other day about this, and they said, well, yeah, there's the, the basic large language model, and then there's a there's already a couple of versions of law-oriented um, uh, generative tools below that, but then you have to say, well, okay, UK law, this was a UK lawyer I was talking to, UK law is different from US law, so we sort of have to have different versions uh, for that. And real estate law is different from, I don't know, securities law or family law or whatever. So we have to have different versions. And then you have maybe versions for each specific law firm. So we're going to be proliferating a lot of generative tools around that may get a little confusing at times. Uh, but I think it does mean that we'll have access to the Morgan Stanley people were saying they uh, trained um, GPT-4 on 100,000 of their documents, and um, it makes it possible for everybody to sort of have the resources, the intellectual resources of the entire firm um, at 
you know, their fingertips with a, with a prompt. And so that's very exciting, I think. And um, who knows what it'll do. I'm trying to get the woman that they took um, this website CNET and they fired a number of the journalists and they made the editor um, no longer, she's no longer the editor, she's in charge of AI now. Uh, so when you talk to me about this, and she said, uh, yes, but I, let me be in my job for a month or so. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> uh, so it's going to, I think, mean a lot of changes in organizations. And more and more, I'm persuaded that um, the, the people who have to fear, have something to fear from all of this are the people who refuse to work with AI, to experiment a little bit with with the um, generative tools to um, edit uh, AI systems outputs, to tinker with prompts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I just think everybody's gonna be working with AI before long. If you're a knowledge worker, you know, maybe even that'll be true of robot ditch diggers and so on as well, but hasn't been that way thus far. Yeah, I think the human in the loop will become the norm um, for for many of the enterprises and as they track with the software. And, and there, there will be also differences between somebody who is able to leverage the uh, like generative tech and, and automation at, the, at large versus somebody who's not. And then that productivity level, and then you touched on that really well, somebody who's doing already four jobs <laughs> in one day versus somebody who's barely doing one job uh, in a single day and maybe they're the identical tasks. That will definitely be a game changer moving forward yeah. from the people's standpoint. Yeah, and you know, I still sort of feel that if you don't need a human in the loop, it's probably not an interesting enough job for a human to be performing anyway. Although, you know, there's some people who don't like to be challenge much at work and who don't are happy doing the same thing over and over again, I think for them, it's going to be tough. But um, if you are open to new ways of working and dealing with technology and so on, I think you'll be fine for the next, um, you know, until the singularity happens and then all bets are off. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is very true. And, and I've seen that um, Sam Altman's new company is trying to also tie to identity of content. And then I think like they do an iris check on human verification to make sure. So it's no longer going to be choosing pictures and finding traffic lamps, maybe at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope so. And um, I, I, I think we'll need um, some kind of watermark approaches. I use Dolly 2 a fair amount for image generation. I've replaced my um, possibly illegal Google images that I put into um, into my PowerPoints and so on with mostly with Dolly 2 now. And I love the fact that there's that little um, multicolor watermark in the corner. And I think we need to find ways to do that for text as well um, and then you know maybe people won't be as worried about it and uh, it'll say you know some of this text was generated by such and such a program or whatever but it was edited by this human or whatever it it, it does also mean i think though that editing skills become more important than first draft capabilities and i think most of us 
are good at one or the other. I hate editing. Um, I wish I was there an editing system that that did a good job rather than a, a first draft system that did a good job. <laughs> you know, that's my yeah. thing that I do well. But um, uh, maybe there'll be both at some point. I don't know. But right now, you really need to be a good editor. And in, in terms of, and this is more in the theoretical thinking, but like the more I look at it on the on AI generating, creating content with humans, building paragraphs to codes to images. And then on the other hand, there was the promise of blockchain at some point to be able to track things down, to be able to make everything recognizable. Um, do you see any intersection point that both technologies can complement each other? And obviously, there's the like Bitcoin market and exchanges, there's the NFT. So like going beyond all of that and just as technology itself of the promise that things are transparent and trackable. Yeah, you know, I, I never really focused all that much on blockchain. I've, I've always been more of a kind of what you do with information kind of guy than a transaction oriented person. Um, a, transactional technologies, I mean, which I always thought blockchain was. Um, and I, I must say I was puzzled a long time ago of if this is such a great way to sort of protect individual ownership and so on, why do we have so many um, frauds and breaches and hacks in this space? Um, uh, I, I still have yet to get a good explanation of that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the exploration that companies were doing with blockchain, uh, you know, the, for example, Maersk, the big shipping line had a thing for keeping track of all their containers and so on. They were working with IBM and they dropped that project. So I don't have really high hopes at the moment for rekindling it quickly. I think there's something that needs to change in the technology to, to make it safer than it's turned out to be and um, uh, to to bring about that clarity of creation and ownership and so on that we were promised in that in that area i think the the model layer needs to really keep up with their quality to be able to then allow more use cases to come out um, and more tangible use cases that their yeah. uh, yeah. businesses can adopt um well that said um, we are at time right now. Um, thank you very much for joining the discussion. I really enjoyed what we talked about. I think we covered a lot of topics that is going to be very impactful to the lives of the people in the future, uh, especially adoption of automation, analytics, adoption of uh, generative tech, some cultural aspects of enterprises to adopt the change and as well as citizen development, citizen data scientists with tying to the low code. Um, I think this was a very, very insightful discussion. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with me. Thanks. We did not use the letters RPA. Is that allowed on this podcast? Yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. It is allowed. It is allowed. We did not. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that as well. <laughs> Nice talking to you, Al. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'll stop recording.